I'm Maria Bruce Peterson. I'm Johanna Kinnock. And this is The Five Podcast, where we invite exciting people to guide you through the big questions of today. Chants, toppling statues, signs and singing fill the streets worldwide in response to the death of George Floyd and hundreds of other African Americans at the hands of the American police. It feels like the old world order is burning to the ground, but what will replace it? Over the next week, the five podcasts will be releasing our mini-series, After the Protest, where we dive into some of the big questions raised by the current demonstrations with some of the leading experts and changemakers on the issue. With them, we'll imagine, with a little bit of hope, what happens after the protests. So welcome back to the five podcast and welcome for the first time to our new mini series. It's called After the Protests and it's going to be in three parts. Um, What we want to do is, of course, cover the protests as something that's happening right now, but mainly cover what led up to this moment and what might happen after this moment. So when the protests die down, what happens? Yeah, and we want to talk about white people, I guess, and and what white people can do. And uh, one of the things I've noticed over the last couple of weeks is how a lot of my friends, a lot of my acquaintances have were very surprised when George Floyd was killed and they were very outraged and rightfully so. Um, but a lot of activists within the, the black liberation movement have been saying that well, if you're if you're surprised now, it's because you weren't paying attention, because this has been happening for the longest time, and we've been talking about it for the longest time, and we've been filming it for the longest time. So, I just also think that right now is a good time for us to look inward and ask ourselves why didn't we know this was happening? Why weren't we talking about this before? but also ask ourselves how are we gonna keep this this outrage and this indignation that we have right now and um, take that with us into the future. How are we gonna keep having these conversations and keep asking that the, the people responsible are brought to justice? So I found this text from 2015 um, by Claudia Rankine. It was in the New York Times at the time. It's called Black Life is a State of Mourning. And it basically just describes what it feels like to 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 live in an anti anti black world and and live in a world where anti blackness has almost become a fact of life. Um, so I'll read a little bit from that. Anti black racism is in the culture. It's in our laws, in our advertisements, in our friendships, in our segregated cities, in our schools, in our Congress, in our scientific experiments, in our language, in the internet, in our bodies, no matter our race, in our communities, and perhaps most devastatingly, in our justice system. The unarmed, slain black bodies in public spaces turn grief into our everyday feeling that something is wrong everywhere and all the time, even if locally things appear normal. Having coffee, walking the dog, reading the paper, taking the elevator to the office, dropping the kids off at school, all of this good life is surrounded by the ambient feeling that at any given moment a black person is being killed in the street or in his home by the armed hatred of a fellow American. So it was this kind of all-encompassing, ambivalent feeling that everyone knew that this thing was going on, but this is the moment where things are being, you know, 
taken into the hands of the people and people are being uh, held accountable really properly by a massive movement for the first time, I feel. Yeah, and I think it's about much more than just holding these individuals accountable. I think that we see this both in the in the text you read and in the protests that this is a need for change on a deep cultural level. Like this is about a, a deeply rooted culture of anti-black racism, not just in America, um, that we need to that we need to face, that we need to reckon with, and that we need to work to change. And I just hope that that we remember this, that we're not surprised the next time this happens, because if we're surprised the next time, it's because we stop paying attention. Yeah, and I just think that this is a moment where we can really look at lots of different things and ask big questions about them. You know, take this time to say, hey, why did it? Why did it get to this? And what needs to change. Hello? Hi, is this Professor JT? Yes, speaking. This is Assistant Professor Wendell Adjetze speaking. He teaches history at McGill University, and he's specialized in the post-Reconstruction U.S. and in the African diaspora. Ajetse is very clear on the fact that the treatment of enslaved African Americans during slavery, and in the years that followed, laid grounds for the police violence we're seeing today. In 2016, the American actor Will Smith, he said on The Late Show that racism isn't getting worse, it's getting filmed. Is that true? Have have police in the U.S. always been been this violent and this racist? One can certainly make that argument that the police and law enforcement and the judiciary in the United States has always been a very racist and anti-black institution. The ubiquity of smartphones uh, is principally why most people who denied the existence of deeply embedded forms of anti-black racism are now witnessing that this is not a new phenomenon, but in fact, this is something that has been around for a very long time, something that actually predates the founding of the Republic of the United States. All right, so so you're saying it predates the founding of the Republic. Um, do you want to tell us where where did the first version of police in the U.S. come from? What did that look like? So the United States, before it became a formal nation state in 1776, was a colony, 13 colonies, British colonies on the North American mainland. And these colonies were inextricably linked to chattel slavery, i.e. the enslavement of Africans and African peoples. As a result of this economic system of chattel slavery, race or racial caste became a defining feature in distinguishing white people from black people. White people denoted freedom and respect and dignity and power, whereas black people, African peoples, denoted bondage, servitude, inferiority, 
and subjugation. In order to maintain that system of chattel slavery, in order to maintain the system of racial caste, and in order to maintain the system of white superiority and black inferiority, various colonial officials would deputize white citizens, or pardon me, white settler colonizers, with the power to patrol um, enslaved peoples, with the power to capture enslaved peoples who ran away from the plantations, and with the power to suppress servile insurrection, which means slave revolts. So you have white individuals and white communities, mostly white men, able-bodied white men, who can perform this civic duty of maintaining oversight on black populations. And it's important to keep in mind that the population usually favored black people, the enslaved peoples. There were usually, in some cases, it could be two black people to one or three to one. And in order to ensure that servile insurrection, which was something that the planter class and the white population was constantly in fear of, they had to ensure that a heavy-handed approach, a great deal of violence, a great deal of force, and constant oversight was implemented in order to keep black people in their servile position. And so after the Civil War, when you have freed men, freed women, children, etc., by the hundreds of thousands who were looking to assert their rights as citizens of the United States, it made the white society very anxious because poor white people up until that point were economically disadvantaged, but their, no pun intended, their trump card where black people were, were concerned was that poor white people could enforce the law on black people, on any black person, whether that black person was educated and could speak good English or whether that black person was poor and completely on the margins. And so when black people became free, this new dynamic completely changed how white people felt about their sense of security and their sense of stature and privilege in the country. And so we see through Reconstruction the rise of these terrorist cells and terror groups of white people that would literally terrorize black people. They would terrorize black churches, black schools, black homes, black businesses. And the law enforcement arm of these terror groups or the policing arm of these terror groups were one and the same. The same individuals who would wear a Ku Klux Klan outfit might be the local sheriff or the local police official. And so one cannot disentangle just how intimately connected policing and racial terrorism is in terms of uh, free black communities in the United States after the Civil War. The racial terrorism was from top to bottom in white society because we have to remember the whether it was the white governors, the white legislators, um, the police officials, all the way to the common white person who was, let's say, a coal miner. 
all had a vested interest to have a scapegoat. And black people have always been that scapegoat in that country. If black people were not there to terrorize and brutalize and genocide and mass incarcerate, the United States would collapse in a heartbeat. The entire premise of that country would collapse in a heartbeat because the poor white people who are heavily armed, heavily armed, who have their own militias, will need a scapegoat. And that means they'll likely turn against the billionaire class or the wealthy class that often scapegoats black people to ease the tension between poor whites and rich white people. So after the Civil War, policing went from informal slave patrols to more formal law enforcement. This was around the mid-1800s. And, says Ajeti, up through the 20th century, we still saw the same dynamics where black communities and other racialized communities were policed much harder than their white counterparts. The police itself became a vehicle through which provisional white people, i.e. the Irish or other ethnic European immigrants, could lay claims to their American identity. By joining the police force and engaging the same forms of anti-black oppression and brutality and terror, those individuals were able to basically show in some ways how their respective communities were truly white and truly a part of the American dynamic and milieu. Were law enforcement at that time mostly led by immigrants from, for example, Ireland and Italy? The police were usually Anglo-Saxon, Scotch, Irish, but with the arrival of new white Europeans, new immigrants, who weren't always considered white, such as the Irish, for example, those groups were able to retain, partly were able to retain a modicum of whiteness and legitimacy by joining police forces and municipal services that were in conflict with black people and black communities. According to assistant professor Jetse, there's a direct line from the colonial period and to the police violence and protests we're seeing today. It is unequivocally the case that what happened in the colonial period in terms of the slave patrols, in terms of the heavy-handed policing of the color line between black and white, in terms of the enforcement of keeping black people in a servile position, informs what is happening in 2020. It predated 1776, the U.S. Revolutionary War. It predated the Civil War in 1860. It was something that was present during Reconstruction. It was present in the early 20th century, and it's certainly very present now. The difference is that we have cameras and ordinary civilians can capture these atrocities in ways that we couldn't have imagined decades before, centuries before. Yeah, so, so, so this violence that we're, we're seeing right now and we've been seeing for, for a long time, is that a reflection of, of American society's racism in general or is this somehow worse within the, the police force? The violence that we're witnessing is reflective of how 
the United States has always treated black people. This is unequivocally an issue of anti-black racism and anti-black terror. These ideas were codified in colonial relations in the 1600s, in the 1700s, in the 1800s, in the 1900s, and today. However, where the police are concerned, we have an institution where even non-white police officers, whether they're Latino, whether they're Asian, of Asian extraction, whether they're of another ethno-cultural background, will engage in the same modes of white supremacist conduct, i.e. black people would be tr- will be treated with much greater severity, harshness, brutality than other civilians, because this is a culture that transcends time. It's, in fact, a culture that is part and parcel of what it means to be in the United States. During the last 30 years, the American police force has become increasingly militarized. In 1997, a practice of donating unused military equipment to local governments began. And according to an article in The New Yorker, since the 1990s, local governments have received $34 billion in grants from the Department of Homeland Security to buy military equipment from private suppliers. On top of this, the Department of Homeland Security has donated $5 billion worth of equipment to local governments. In other words, local police have gotten access to a lot of heavy-duty military equipment designed for combat. This includes armored vehicles built to resist roadside bombs, assault rifles, infrared gun sights, and grenade launchers. The militarization of the police, and by virtue of the police having these military-grade weapons, military-grade hardware, are more inclined to use that hardware to engage in tactical behavior and tactical acts that would give them justification for having that hardware in the first place and for the justification to be able to procure a greater hardware in the future. So what you're saying is that the, in, in order to, to look like military, you need to have threats uh, within the country that are of that scale as well. Precisely. And it's important to understand that the militarization of police, again, goes hand in hand with the militarization of the public, right? The United States is awash in firearms. It's awash in assault rifles. Civilians have military-grade weapons. But again, those are mostly white organizations, white militias to have some of these weapons. Yet again, the militarization of the police to counter the militarization of the civilian population impacts poor black communities that are not thinking in any way, shape, or form of threatening the government or overthrowing the government, whereas white militia groups do think about these things and do make threats, whether veiled or not. Assistant Professor Wendell Ajete isn't entirely against police. He just believes that the funding is going into the wrong hands and that a lot of the time we end up policing poverty. There's a, a level of policing that I think is is warranted and is plausible. 
And then there's a level of policing that clearly suggests that our society is so unjust and is so unequal and that wealth inequality, income inequality, is principally the reason why a lot of people are committing poverty crimes. Let's not forget that George Floyd was accused of allegedly using a fake $20 note. The fact that a human being could lose their life like an ant or a farm animal slaughtered on the street over an alleged counterfeit bill is just, it's the epitome of insanity and inhumanity and the epitome of anti-blackness. So if George Floyd, for whatever reason, was not unemployed, if George Floyd was gainfully employed, if George Floyd was perceived as being a full rights-bearing person, which most African-Americans are not, especially African-American men are not, then George Floyd would be in a position, would have been in a position where he would not have been killed like a stray dog by virtue of having allegedly used a fake note. What do you mean by not being a full right um, bearing member of society? Well, black people in the United States, by virtue of the history and by virtue of what persists, by virtue of the mass incarceration of black people, one in three black men will be incarcerated. It is a, I mean, by virtue of the level of police brutality and violence against black people, by virtue of the poverty that most black people experience in the United States, African Americans in particular experience in the United States, by virtue of many different indicators of well-being, black people have been enduring a genocide, a long, centuries-long genocide. And so no person in their right mind can look at a black person in the United States and say, well, this is a full, a full rights-bearing member of society. Full rights-bearing members of society are not killed like they're straight. They're straight pets. So a full rights-bearing member of society in the U.S. is white? Unequivocally white. And black people have been codified as the antithesis of white. So if white is good, white is justified, white is empowered, white has an economic base, white has white is innocent until proven guilty, black people are the exact opposite. And hence why George Floyd was also killed, because he was proven guilty. He was guilty before proven innocent. So, so looking back at history, it seems almost cyclical how protesters are now calling for legislators to defund the police, to reform the departments, to recognize the harm done and do better. Um, but when you look at history, what has happened to the police after protests died down in the past? With recent uprisings in the country, part of the reason why we return back to the status quo is because of the precedent that has already been established. That white people cannot be held to the full extent of the law for terrorizing black people. And of course, this unspoken rule applies to law enforcement mostly. So, are you saying nothing will come from this? I'm not necessarily saying that nothing will come of this, but that a lot of black people are circumspect. But this 
particular moment suggests that there there's also room for for hope and for optimism because what we're seeing in the United States today and the mass uprising which is reverberated around the world is not simply because of George Floyd it's principally because there are too many George Floyds in the United States and that there are too many instances of white officers and non-black police officers who kill black people who are never held to account because black lives do not matter much in the United States. Do you see this, what's happening right now, as being a turning point in any way? This could be an inflection point. This could be a turning point, partly because the economic situation as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic has further exposed how precarious most Black people are in the United States. And it certainly has had an impact on other non-Black communities. Um, and it's certainly affected white people as well. And so individuals from various racial backgrounds, regardless of their class and sexuality, etc., are seeing what's are seeing this climate of anti-blackness and realizing that something needs to change. Otherwise, the country will not remain in intact and cannot retain its legitimacy. So as a historian, Wendell Ajetse always recommends looking at the past to understand the challenges in our society right now. The first constitution in the country, for example, in 1789, the U.S. Constitution, afforded citizenship to a specific group of individuals. And I bring this up because it's important in terms of understanding why we continue to express, experience the challenges that we do where policing is concerned. The Constitution afforded citizenship to white, able-bodied men, meaning white men who could bear arms. Why is that important after the United States became a country, three years into becoming a country? It was important because the United States was becoming a slave power. It was a society based on slavery, an economy wholly dependent on slavery and the enslavement of African people. And as a result of that, again, the fear of servile insurrection, slave rebellions, was ubiquitous. It was paramount, but also the fear of attacks by quote-unquote savages, i.e. indigenous peoples, was also paramount. So in order to be a member of the society, to be a full rights-bearing member of the society, you needed to be able to pay your dues to protect the society against its chief foe, which were black people, and then the second foe, which were indigenous peoples. This dynamic, regardless of whether it was over 250 years ago, this dynamic has pervaded the decades. It has literally shaped the white imagination of white, what black people are. It has forever made black people the boogeyman of U.S. society. It has criminalized black people unjustly. It has terrorized black people unjustly. It has genocided black people as well. And so... Without confronting these harsh realities and the harsh historical facts, 
we have no, we don't stand a chance of changing our society and making it something that is more just and legitimate. Thank you so much for for being on the podcast. My pleasure. You're welcome. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye for now. You've been listening to The Five Podcast, where we tackle some of the big questions of today. The podcast is brought to you by Five Media, a new global media platform that aims to change the conversation through quality journalism. Go to fivemedia.com for more Five content and subscribe to the podcast to never miss an episode. New episodes are out every second Friday. See you there. Bye. Bye.